More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. I am Kelly. And before we get into today's episode, I have a little announcement to make. We have launched SurvivorSanctuary.com, our all new website, and I would love for you to check it out. You can visit obviously, SurvivorSanctuary.com. There you can listen to podcasts, you can share the podcast to social media, you can comment on podcasts, send me a message, learn more about the podcast itself, learn more about me, and even book me for a speaking engagement if you would like to do that. So many things that you can do on the website, SurvivorSanctuary.com, including read some blog posts as well, written by me, and I'm really excited for the website to bring more opportunities for Survivor Sanctuary to serve survivors of sexual abuse. Going to have a lot of really great resources there, and I'm super excited. But first things first, the website is live. If you haven't checked it out yet, visit SurvivorSanctuary.com and just peruse. Let me know what you think. Well, today's episode of Survivor Sanctuary is probably going to be the most vulnerable episode that I've ever recorded. And I've actually put off recording this episode thinking, you know what, if I ever write a book, I will include this in the book, and that seems a little bit safer than just kind of letting it out here on the podcast. But I think that it's really important to actually talk about it, so I'm going to just be brave and suck it up and let you in on a part of my life that honestly, it is so much easier for me to just not talk about, keep to myself, and not, you know, announce to however many people are listening to this podcast right now. Um, The thing that kind of pushed me over the edge to talk about obesity and childhood sexual abuse on this episode of the podcast is, of course, Facebook. Facebook is just like a plethora of awesome information. And it's also the place to go if you just want to get angry at people's ignorance. (laughs) And uh, some things that people post are a little bit crazy sometimes. And I was a bit triggered this past week when someone posted on Facebook about obesity. And it's actually one of several times this person has posted something about obesity. And this is a person that I like. Great person. Awesome. They just don't seem to understand the impact of their words. And in the past, when this person has posted, it's been just like, oh, these are the effects of obesity on your body. And it's just terrible that anyone would, you know, choose to be obese, basically was like the gist of one of the previous messages that I've seen posted on Facebook. And this past week, it was essentially an admonishment to the church to stop acting like obesity isn't gluttony. 
So yeah, super triggered by that. I wasn't extremely kind in my response and I regret a little bit just the snarkiness with which I responded. However, when I had some time to sit back and think about like a non-snarky way to tackle this topic, I kind of just came up with the idea for this episode and the things that I want to talk about today. So listen, first of all, I just want to get a couple of things out there and make it clear. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a professional researcher. I'm a podcaster and I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. And I am someone who has struggled with weight issues my entire life. And well, let me back that up. My entire life after I was sexually abused. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, I am not here to give you medical advice. I am not here to act as a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist, anything like that. But I'm just here to talk about what is my experience with obesity and childhood sexual abuse and what may be your experience as well. And I also just want to say every person's experience after childhood sexual abuse is going to be a little bit different. We all suffer from very similar things. There are patterns, of course, in some of the ways that people suffer after being sexually abused. However, they're not the exact same for every single person. So while one person may develop an eating disorder after being abused, say bulimia, which is very common after sexual abuse, like extremely common after sexual abuse, someone may develop bulimia and their struggle may be with an eating disorder that either prevents eating or encourages purging after eating. Some people suffer from anorexia after sexual abuse. So I'm not here to say that every single person who is sexually abused as a child is going to struggle with obesity. So if you're like, hey, I'm a survivor of sexual abuse and I'm totally skinny and in perfect shape. Well, that's awesome. I'm sure, though, that if we had to like put all of our issues on the table, you know, it's kind of a trade off. I have this. You have this. Some people struggle with this. Some people struggle with that. So it's not necessarily my purpose here today to tell you that every single survivor of sexual abuse has dealt with obesity or will. I'm also not here to tell you that every single person who is obese or struggles with weight has been sexually abused. But what I am here to tell you is that obesity is often one of the visible scars of sexual abuse. We talk about sexual abuse and its scars often being unrecognizable to the naked eye. Somebody can't see the ways that sexual abuse has harmed you because it doesn't leave a physical mark on you. Well, I think that when it comes to obesity in childhood and in adulthood, Often, that is one of the scars of sexual abuse where you can look at someone and actually see that it is a struggle. So before I jump in and tackle this Facebook post, this opinion about gluttony and obesity and all of the problems I find with that, I want to go back and share a part of my story because I think that it's just important. It's my experience with what we're talking about on this episode of Survivor Sanctuary. So as a little girl... I was a very tiny little girl, um, slim and slender, and had super long white blonde hair, just like my mom. And my mom always had a very nice figure, and everybody always said, oh, 
Kelly. She looks just like her mom. She's going to be just like her mom, you know, when she's older. And I have pictures to prove my point. Um, Leading up to the time that my family went overseas, I was a very slender kid. And here's one of the reasons why I was a slender kid. I was terrified of food. And that sounds weird, but I hated being asked to eat something that I wasn't familiar with or that I didn't like the taste of. I was a very, very picky kid. And it was like weird pickiness. I hated breakfast foods. I could not stand anything related to breakfast or anything that you would put pancake syrup on. I I just was repulsed by breakfast food in general because we traveled a lot as kids. And after I had a couple of experiences of like throwing up in our family station wagon on our way, wherever we were going after breakfast, um, I just started to just be completely turned off to breakfast food. So it was really difficult for me to like anything related to breakfast. I had these strange quirks. Like I knew that I hated blueberry muffins, again, breakfast food. And I wouldn't eat cupcakes because they were shaped the same as breakfast muffins. And so all I could think was, nah, that's a muffin, not touching it, even though obviously it's cake. And I don't think I had a problem with cake as a kid, but I wouldn't eat cupcakes for that reason. I remember actual times being a little kid and just being so upset that I had to go to the dinner table and eat food because I wanted to play instead. And I get that that's normal kid stuff. Like you want to play, you don't want your parents to tell you you have to stop playing so you can go and sit and eat dinner. And I did not like it at all. I also hated having to try foods that I wasn't familiar with. And a lot of things just grossed me out. I don't know how else to explain it. I just didn't like very many foods when I was a kid. I'm sure like every kiddo, I was like, oh, yay, candy and fruit I was fine with. And there were some foods that were okay. But by and large, my memories of eating leading up to the time when I was six and a half years old, they were all centered on me being repulsed by food and not wanting it. And not like, I don't think in like an eating disorder kind of a way, but just I didn't have any interest and food slowed me down when I wanted to be doing other things. And I also did not want to eat food that just seemed gross to me. It scared me to death. Uh, Another example, and I remember being in Indonesia and having a dinner at the American club it was called in Jakarta and the American club was of course for Americans and we had dinner there with the other missionaries one evening and like they would give us a basket of bread and butter and I hated biscuits again a breakfast food I don't know what was wrong with me I am totally fine have a great relationship with biscuits now but as a kiddo I hated them they repulsed me especially if you put butter on them I thought butter was the grossest thing in the world I wouldn't eat dinner rolls because they reminded me of biscuits they were shaped the same they were both bread. It was sus and I was not going to eat them. So just like weird, random, quirky things about me and just not loving food as a kid. And I will tell you, I remember the exact day that that changed. And it was about the second or third time that my abuser came over after he had abused me for the first time. And I know now that he was there to try and get me alone once again. He'd already had a couple of sessions with me, we'll call them, and had touched me inappropriately and molested me. And he was at our house, I think, to try and find a way to get me alone again. And I have a picture, and I thought that I had destroyed it, and so I was super upset. Um, A picture of me as a kid, this night that my abuser came over, 
and we were sitting at the kitchen table and my mom was serving up cake and ice cream. And I remember the cake. It was a chocolate cake. I'm not sure what we were celebrating or if it was just because in general we liked cake. Not sure. But it's a picture of me. And I've actually torn off the top of the picture. I think I probably did that one day, just not wanting to see the face of my abuser. Uh, But he's in the background and I am sitting and just shoveling a bite of ice cream into my face. And the look on my face shows my discomfort. It shows how uncomfortable I am having my abuser standing right there behind my back and holding my brother on his shoulders as though nothing was wrong, smiling big for the camera. And I'm sitting there with all of my shame and all of the just whatever feelings that I didn't know how to handle at the age of six years old. And I'm trying to tamp them down with that ice cream. And you can see it in this photo. And actually, I've posted it on the podcast podcast page. And so you can see this actual evening that I'm talking about. And this evening was the night that I realized that everything could go back to normal. Like I was, I felt like I was drowning, desperately searching for a way to be okay. And well, to not drown. And I found it that evening. And it was me staying at that table with my parents and knowing that as long as I didn't leave the table, I wouldn't have to be alone with Jerry. And as long as I didn't have to be alone with Jerry, then it could just go back to him just being a nice person who wanted to give me pictures that he had drawn and candy and and like just be a normal, happy, fun person that my family loved. I thought, okay, as long as I stay here, then I'm with my parents and it's okay. And I don't know because I don't have, I mean, I'm not that talented. I'm not a neuroscientist. I don't know for sure that I correlated food with that feeling of safety at the time. I don't know. There's a chance that subconsciously I did. I know that for me, it was definitely like stay at this table. And if you don't get up, then you don't have to be alone with him and everything can go back to the way it was before. And I just remember kind of like eventually like laughing and (laughs) nervously like trying to feel good because nothing bad was happening. And it was just this sense of relief. And so I don't know if my brain took that and ran with it, but here's what I do know. After that photograph, after that evening, after I was sexually abused by this man who was a trusted person in our family, um, after that happened, I became obsessed with food. As a six-year-old child, this is not normal. I know that some kids love food more than others. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not trying to say that this is every person's experience. But I will tell you that I went very quickly from the slim, slender, cutesy little blonde to a child who really struggled with their weight. And it was in a matter of months. My family moved from the city that we lived in, Bandung, and we moved to Bali. And when you look at the difference in the pictures of me in Bandung, and that was like right after I was abused, and then you look a few months later at the pictures of me in Bali, you can literally see the difference in my body. You can see that my tummy is bigger, that my face is bigger and it's puffy and I'm puffy. And like, there is a stark difference between those two photos. And, you know, I always wondered why I was just more prone to weight than my siblings were. You know, some of them may have struggled a little bit later on in life with issues related to weight. Um, However, as children, it was me. I was the one that struggled and I was the one who was sexually abused. So I went from this child who was terrified to eat 
and didn't like being called to the table to a kid who would literally sit and eat way past the point of fullness to the point where it hurt. That's also not normal for a child. Typically we have these like just whatever instincts in us we'll stop eating when we're not hungry anymore, you know, and, and it's children don't eat for pleasure the same way that adults do. Like you get into bad habits as adults, you sit in front of the TV and eat a ton when you're a kid and you're just like focused on kid things or whatever, you typically have that internal alarm that just says, Oh, Hey, you're full, you're done eating. And then no matter how good the food is, you're not interested anymore. Like you can hand a kid an ice cream when they're done with that ice cream, they're done with it. Like that's it, you know? So it was very odd. And I started to get some like worrisome pushback from my mom because she could see that I was gaining weight. She had never had a weight problem in her life and she was worried and concerned, but it seemed to be a food problem, you know, which is normal. You look at a child who overeats and you immediately think the problem here is that you're overeating. And what you're not thinking is the overeating is a symptom of the problem. It's not the problem itself. So I went from being the skinny little kid to being the chubby little kid got teased a lot in school. Uh, kids are brutal. They're just brutal, brutal people. And it almost seems like you can be forgiven for anything wrong with you or that makes you different. But if you're overweight, you're going to be in for it when you're in school because kiddos can be jerks. And I was always nice to people, you know, growing up and tried to be nice to the outcasts and things like that. Didn't help me a whole lot when I needed help to be kept from bullying. Um, Got bullied a lot, especially in that like weird middle school phase. It was not fun. So I'm not going to go into, at this point, every single struggle or weight milestone in my entire life, Um, but I will say that that was the turning point as a small child, and there's such a stark difference. It was, you know, people say a complete 180, whatever it is, like, I did an about face, and I went from being the kid who did not ever want to eat and who didn't really like or was not interested in very many foods, and in fact, feared lots of them, to the kid who was like, give me all the food. That sounds fabulous. And let's eat until we are past the point of fullness. You know, something interesting is I read an article on obesity and child sexual abuse and the link between the two. It's an article in The Atlantic, and I've linked it in the show notes so that you can read it yourself. And it says... The trauma of sexual abuse often manifests through a preoccupation with food, dieting, and a drive to feel uncomfortably full. One analysis of 57,000 women in 2013 found that those who experienced physical or sexual abuse as children were twice as likely to be addicted to food than those who did not. When I read that, I was kind of like, like I already knew, like I've, I've read quite a bit about the link between obesity and childhood sexual abuse, and I was still very surprised when... The Atlantic brought this up in their article that the trauma of sexual abuse manifests through a preoccupation with food and a drive to feel uncomfortably full. And I don't know why that is. Nobody can quite explain it. However, that is literally what happened to me at the age of six and a half when I just completely changed and went from thin and hates food to not thin anymore and driven to feel uncomfortably full. I can remember, and this is very strange to me. I always tell people, if there's a memory that sticks out to you in your childhood, a lot of times I think that it's just like, I don't know if our brains, just our intuition knows this is an important snapshot to keep in our brains, but who remembers meals that they ate when they were six, seven years old? Like, do you literally remember sitting at the table and eating? I 
remember like in vivid detail so many times that I was sitting and eating and overeating to the point of being super, super uncomfortably full. At seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, there was no reason for it that I knew of. There was no reason I consciously knew of. It was just something that I was driven to do. So one of the reasons that researchers and scientists believe that obesity is more likely in a person who's been sexually abused is because there's this subconscious knowledge that if you're larger or more imposing, you're less attractive to people who might want to prey on you. I really don't know how that works. I don't know how as a six-year-old child, I could have subconsciously known that if I were larger, I would be less attractive to people who wanted to sexualize me. But I do know whether it was a conscious thought or not, that was the reality for me. As I ate and I gained weight and I became overweight and was like the chubby kid, I definitely got less attention from people. It went from, oh, Kelly's so beautiful. She's such a beautiful girl and she looks just like her mom and she's just going to be this heartbreaker. And it went from that to a much more safe, like I could fade into the background. Boys didn't want to pay attention to me, didn't like me. And that was, I guess, more comfortable for me. The article that I mentioned in The Atlantic, it's entitled, Why Victims of Sexual Abuse Are More Likely to Be Obese. Um, They say this, many become prone to binge eating. Others willfully put on weight to desexualize in the hope that what happened to them as children will never happen again. And again, for me, I don't remember consciously thinking, oh, if I eat a lot, I'll gain weight and then I won't be attractive and then creepy men will leave me alone. Those were not conscious thoughts. Subconsciously though, it makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense that I definitely fulfilled whatever my brain set out to do in order to protect me. And that was gained weight, was not a person that was super popular with the boys, if you will. And anytime that I would become popular with the boys, um, you know, through losing some weight or looking cute, Um, that would trigger anxiety in me. That would trigger eating. It would just trigger me to like reach back for that comfortable, nobody's looking at me, nobody's paying attention to me type of existence. We've talked a lot on this podcast about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and the big study that has shown a link between adverse childhood experiences and all sorts of health problems and drug abuse and just terrible things. And often we look at what happens to kids and we think, oh, they are just so resilient. Kids will bounce back. And in this article in The Atlantic, One of the doctors that they interviewed who works with obese patients, and many of those patients have been sexually abused, he says, the things that don't kill you can make you stronger, but if they go unaddressed, they can also get to a point where they become overwhelming and will destroy you. And he's talking about adverse childhood experiences, and there's a big list of them. Substance abusing parents, having a parent that's mentally ill, having uh, parents go through a divorce, neglect, physical abuse. But he says of all those ACEs, sexual abuse seems to be the most pernicious. This is particularly true for women. And I'll go back to that analysis of 57,000 women that found that people who had experienced physical or sexual abuse as children were twice as likely to be addicted to food than those who did not. So I could sit here and I could point out article after article after article and study after study, and I could 
talk about the research that's been done on the link between obesity and childhood sexual abuse. And honestly, I think that we're just scratching the surface at this point. I think there's so much more work to be done. However, the link is obviously there. That's not really a question in anyone's mind. Anyone except those who want to oversimplify trauma and want to oversimplify recovery and want to make it seem as though recovering from trauma is as simple as just deciding that you're going to do it. Um, Everyone except those people, I think, are pretty much on board with the research that's been done on the link between obesity and childhood sexual abuse. So now I want to go back into how this affects survivors of childhood sexual abuse within the church. And I want to go back to that meme on Facebook, that comment on Facebook, really, that essentially said, you know, church, stop pretending that obesity isn't gluttony. Well, let me just say this. Obesity and gluttony are not synonyms. They don't mean the same thing. Obesity is obviously a state of being overweight and gluttony is habitual greed or excess. And yes, it can be excess in eating or drinking, but it can also be greedy or excessive indulgence of food, drink, wealth items, particularly as status symbols. A glutton typically overindulges to prove some kind of superiority, wealth, like, oh, look at me and all this that I have, and it's fabulous. Um, It also can be gluttony if you are consuming so much when the people around you have so little and you're hoarding it all for yourself and being gluttonous in that way. Gluttony does not mean obesity. Those are two very different things. And here's why it matters to survivors of sexual abuse, because when we experience sexual abuse and we struggle with the aftermath and we struggle with some of the health conditions and problems that can crop up for people who have been sexually abused, problems that very often do crop up for people who have been sexually abused, we're already struggling with that. And then we're looking to the church, we're looking to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, if you will, to offer some sort of safe haven from abuse and to offer some kind of hope for healing and not even just healing. It's not like I look at every Christian and expect them to help me heal from sexual abuse, but it's expecting some sort of acceptance from people. And while abuse is a stigma itself and can make you feel like an outcast by itself, a lot of times the effects of abuse can make you feel like an outcast and you're stigmatized because you have these effects of sexual abuse. And I mentioned it earlier, but obesity is a visible scar from sexual abuse. It's something that you can see. But when you go into a church and you hear pastors and speakers and just other Christians saying obnoxious things like, obesity is gluttony. And if you're overweight, basically if you're obese, then it's because you're sinful and you're gluttonous. And let me tell you, I believe 100% that it is spiritually abusive to oversimplify weight struggles as sin, to oversimplify a struggle with weight as gluttony and one of the seven deadly sins, and just to chalk it up to you are overweight because you're a stinking sinner who eats too much because you are gluttonous and you just want to sit and eat and be lazy and that's what it's all about and that's it's a stigma there is a stigma against people who are overweight 
all over the world. It's not just in the church, but it's particularly egregious when it's in the church because the church is supposed to reflect the love of Christ, the acceptance of Christ, who loves us exactly the way that we are, even in our flaws. Chalking up weight problems, especially with people who are morbidly obese, to sinfulness is just another way that the church neglects and re-traumatizes victims of abuse. And, you know, this Facebook post and this opinion of one person is not enough to make me record a podcast and share my feelings on this. Again, I don't think they meant any harm, but it comes from a person who is stick thin and who has some very close loved ones who are not. And I just kind of look at that and think, huh, like how could you not have any inkling that trauma has something to do with this? How could that just not be something in your mind? And I think that it's particularly difficult for people who have been thin their entire lives or who have never struggled with being overweight their entire lives. It is very difficult to get into the mind of someone who's overweight and who has gained weight as a way of dealing with sexual abuse or has looked to food as a way to kind of block out the memories of sexual abuse. It's really difficult. And I think it's easy sometimes if you've never struggled with weight, you've never had an issue with, you know, having to worry about childhood obesity or adulthood obesity, if it's not something that's ever really been on your radar, not like, oh, I could stand to lose five or 10 pounds. We're talking like people who really struggle with their weight. If you never have, it's really difficult to understand. And I think that because we want to understand things, sometimes it's easier to just chalk it up to, hey, this is really simple. I mean, I'm not overweight because I don't overeat. So that should then follow that if you would not overeat, then you would not be overweight. It's very simple. So just stop committing the sin of gluttony and you won't be obese anymore. And again, it's an oversimplification of weight struggles. It's calling an adverse childhood experience reaction, a trauma response. It's calling it a sin. And it's demeaning to survivors of sexual abuse. It's demeaning to anybody who struggles with obesity. Like, Honestly, I've been in a lot of churches. I grew up in many different churches, and there's always a pastor who thinks it's his job to preach on weight loss. And I don't know if you saw a documentary about the lady who did like the way down workshops and just really like crazy stuff. I I remember people being on her crazy diets and basically like telling people like they want to be right with God, they need to just not eat, you know, like, like that's essentially what it came down to. And like some crazy things developed from that. Um, but as, as a church, we have been obsessed with weight loss pretty much as much as the rest of the world is. And if you can like spiritualize it somehow, uh, you can sell lots of books. If you can spiritualize it somehow, then you have fodder for a sermon. Um, I worked for a pastor at one point, and I mean, this will step on some toes, but I'll just be honest. He had gained weight and suddenly just started losing, losing, losing weight. And one of the reasons he was able to lose weight is because during church office hours, when, you know, the church handbook said that everybody on staff had to be in the office, he was out doing 50 mile 
like bike rides throughout the Florida Keys and eating sushi and pineapple for every meal. Like that was why he didn't have to struggle with obesity because he was able to on church time and on the church's dime, lose weight. And then of course, have a sermon series telling everybody in the church how they need to honor God with their bodies and also lose weight. And I've also been in churches where pastors would see people I love come in the door and people I love who struggle with their weight and immediately like start preaching sermons on gluttony and like asking people to stay like stand up if you struggle with gluttony and basically asking all the overweight people in the church to stand up and like admit to their sin of gluttony and ask to be forgiven. It's just like, you know what? It's, it's complete and utter BS is what it is. It's BS. And listen, I'm not against people living healthy lives. I'm not against somebody losing weight if their weight is affecting their health, which it will eventually, like it's going to catch up to us eventually. Being overweight isn't good for your health. But here's the thing. All the knowledge in the world about the perils of obesity do not fix people who are obese as a response to childhood trauma. It doesn't fix them. And we've seen that over and over again. You can educate people all you want on macros and on going to the gym and eating healthy and here's why obesity is terrible and here's why it's going to kill you and it's going to cause heart disease and diabetes and, you know, this will happen and that'll happen and, you know, you're at a greater risk for all these things destroying your life and being sick in your later years of life. Like you can educate people till you're blue in the face. It does not fix the underlying problem because overeating is not the problem. It is a symptom of the problem, which is trauma. So the church is not doing anybody any favors equating gluttony and obesity. They're not doing anybody any favors by preaching sermons, essentially telling people who are overweight that they're just sinful. And, you know, if you weren't sinful, then you wouldn't be overweight. And here's another thing. Here's another reason this is a slap in the face to survivors of sexual abuse and other kinds of childhood trauma that may lead to obesity. It's because not only does the abuse itself put a person at a much higher risk of dealing with obesity, but so do a lot of the remedies for trauma. And I'll give you an example in my own life. I have dealt with horrifying anxiety, just horrible, horrible anxiety since I was molested as a child. And I don't know if some of that anxiety was hereditary probably, but I don't recall ever experiencing anxiety like that until I was sexually abused. Like that's when it really began. And it's been a struggle ever since, even after therapy and after lots of different ways that I've tried to heal, I still deal with anxiety and it can be really bad sometimes. Well, in my late 20s, I finally just decided I can't live like this anymore. I, I can't. I, I wanted to die. Like I literally felt that kind of anxiety, the kind of anxiety where I understood why people did not want to live anymore because death would have been a welcome change from the anxiety that I was feeling. And it might sound extreme, but if you've struggled with really bad debilitating anxiety, you know what I'm talking about. I wanted to be dead rather than feel the anxiety that I was feeling. I would have done anything to get better. And it was a really dark time in my life. I'll just say that. It was a very, very dark time um, when the anxiety was so overwhelming that I just, I don't even have words to put it into, 
I was miserable and I was tormented with this anxiety. And so I knew some people who had gone to therapy and who had begun taking antidepressants. And I thought, well, I'm not depressed, so I don't think I need an antidepressant. But I soon learned that often antidepressants are prescribed for people who deal with anxiety because they say anxiety and depression are like two sides of the same coin. Not a psychiatrist, don't know exactly how that works, but I will say that a lot of SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you think of like Zoloft and Prozac and Lexapro, things like that. Um, A lot of SSRIs are prescribed for people who have anxiety. I wanted to get rid of that anxiety so badly that I would have taken arsenic pills if you told me that they would help. But finally, I was prescribed an SSRI. And what I wasn't told was that many people who begin taking SSRIs begin struggling with weight problems. I already had a weight problem, but it was one that I felt like I could, you know, control. And I didn't feel like, you know, I didn't need to be on my 600 pound life or anything. Like I just wasn't a thin person, you know? Um, But I started taking these pills and I started gaining weight. I had a psychiatrist take me off of those pills and put me on a pill that is generally prescribed to the elderly or people who are going through cancer treatments to stimulate their appetites. I'm not sure why this doctor thought this would be a great idea, but it was horrifying. And I gained so much weight in such a quick amount of time when I was hardly eating because it was a time in my life where I was extremely anxious and stressed and I had no appetite because when my anxiety is like that, I don't uh, yet continued to gain weight. In the first two years after I started taking SSRIs and then this medicine that I ended up refusing to take anymore because I saw myself gaining weight and I was like, I'm not taking this anymore if this is what's going to happen to me. What I didn't realize is the SSRI that I was on caused hypothyroidism and that the vast majority of people that took it would end up gaining lots and lots of weight. And I would go on message boards and like read, like, does anyone else have this problem? And people would say, listen, you can either be fat and happy or you can be thin and anxious and depressed. You got to pick one because there's no middle ground. And I fought for years to try and find a middle ground. But I will say that about two years after I started taking SSRIs, I had put on approximately 80 pounds. And yeah, it's very difficult to say that out loud and to tell people on a podcast episode that that's something that I dealt with in my life. But again, I don't think there's a point in me being here if I'm not going to be real and if I'm not going to be vulnerable. And for the purposes of this podcast, I'm just going to be real. Taking SSRIs, I gained 80 pounds plus in a little over two years. And I blamed it on everything else I possibly could and, you know, feeling lethargic and just kind of sitting and like constantly thinking about food in a way that had never happened before I was taking SSRIs. It was just very, very strange. And you would have doctors who would say, you know, the research shows that this medicine shouldn't cause weight gain. And then you would go and look at a poll of like 10,000 people who have taken the medicine and they would all say something different. So now more studies have been done and there's a lot more information out there about the relationship between SSRIs and weight gain. And now I think it's like universally acknowledged that all but a couple of SSRIs cause weight gain. Unfortunately, 
I have to take an SSRI. And I do because of the anxiety that I experience. And it really, this is the one thing that kind of levels out whatever it is in my brain that is a little mixed up and thinks I need to be extremely anxious all the time. I still deal with anxiety, but it does help to be on a medication that kind of keeps it a little bit at bay and keeps my brain just a little bit more in balance, if you will. And I've always refused to take, and and this is not knocking anybody who's taken medicines like Xanax or that kind of a medication, Valium or Xanax. I know some people who have panic attacks and things like that, you can't do anything else. I've always hated how those medicines made me feel when I have been prescribed them. So I haven't taken them just because I don't like that lethargic feeling and feeling like I'm not present in my body. It's just, I don't like that personally. And so I haven't gone that route. But my experience with medicine has been a really, really crummy one. I finally found a medication that did not cause me to gain weight. And that actually, you know, I was able to lose a lot of the weight that I gained. And, you know, thank goodness, I I didn't stay where I was at the two years after I started taking SSRIs. But I will tell you this, that medicine quit working. And it started making my anxiety even worse. So in the last couple of years, I've had to play around with different medications. And I will say that every single time that I try a new SSRI, it's like opening the floodgates of weight gain. It does something in my brain and in my body that causes an upward tick. And here's the interesting thing, because I thought at one point, maybe it's all in my head. And I think, oh, I take an SSRI and I immediately gain 20 pounds. Like, how is that even possible? It has to just be in my head. Maybe I'm just getting stressed and I'm thinking that this is it when it's not. But I have an example of a medication that a doctor prescribed for anxiety. It helped more than I think anything else I've ever taken as far as anxiety is concerned. However, uh, the doctor said, what's awesome about this medicine is that a lot of people who take it lose a lot of weight. Like they're just not hungry and it's awesome. People start to lose weight on this medicine. And I was like, sign me up, buddy, if it helps my anxiety and it's going to make me lose weight, I am right on board with you. Well, I gained 25 pounds on that medication. Again, just being open and being being vulnerable here, even though I will probably regret it after this airs. However, I blamed everything else that I could possibly think of. I, I kept thinking, am I just stressed? Am I worried about something? Is, you know, I, I was dating someone at the time and a lot of times that triggers all kinds of weirdness and anxiety in me. I thought maybe that's why I started to put on weight to kind of like protect myself. So I'm thinking yeah, it couldn't be the medicine because the medicine makes you lose weight. Until I started looking into the medicine more and I realized that yes, in some people it caused weight loss. In about half the people who take it, it causes weight gain. And I started to read some of these people's stories and they were like, yep, had to stop taking this. I gained tons and tons and tons of weight. And I was just like, I was so upset because yes, the medicine helped, but I had this weirdness in my brain where I constantly thought about food and it made no sense to me. I'm not like a nighttime food eater. I just like, when I go to sleep, like I just want to be asleep. You know, I know some people get up in the middle of the night and have a snack. I've never been that person. But if I'd have to get up in the middle of the night, like to pee or anything, it would be like, ooh, pantry. And just thoughts would pop into my head. I wouldn't necessarily like respond to all the thoughts, but it was just a very different way that my brain worked when I was on this medication. And when I stopped the medication guess what stopped? That issue with gaining weight. So 
all this to say, and it's probably too much information, and I'm probably oversharing if that's even possible on a podcast like this, but I just want to be as open as possible with this to help anybody that doesn't understand this to maybe understand it a little bit more. That not only does abuse put a person at a higher risk of obesity, you're more than two times as likely to be obese if you were sexually abused than if you were not. Or some people say like you're 400% more likely. There are a lot of different studies. There's a lot of research out there. Again, I'm not a research specialist or a doctor, um, but I do read what's out there and the link is very, very strong. But not only is the link between childhood trauma and obesity strong, the link between the, the way we fix childhood trauma, which often is medication, there's a link between the medication and obesity as well. So when somebody who's struggling with all of this crap and trying to heal and trying to live a normal life and trying to not have anxiety attacks every five minutes and you know trying to be able to afford medication, when somebody like that comes into your church and they hear a friggin' sermon where you're standing up in your skinny jeans, in your high and mighty superior voice and talking down to any Anyone in the congregation that's overweight and saying obesity is gluttony. Like, that's not helpful. It's not godly. It's not spiritual. It's kind of just obnoxious. Like, that to me, it's just obnoxious. At its best, it's just people being ignorant and just not understanding the link between obesity and childhood sexual abuse, not understanding the struggles that people who have experienced trauma go through. At its, at its best, that's what it is. At its worst, it's spiritually abusive uh, because you're telling a lie. You're lying to people and telling them essentially that if they're overweight, it's because they're not right with God. If they're overweight, it's because they're gluttonous and they're being sinful. If they're overweight, you know, it's this, it's because of their black souls that are condemned to hell. Like that is not helpful to anyone. Like where is your mercy and your compassion and your grace for people? Where is that located? Because I would love to find it. And while you might not understand a person's struggle with obesity, you might not understand how it relates to childhood trauma. You might not understand, you know, why somebody can't just say, oh, I'm going to go on a diet today and I'll be thin in six months. Like if you don't understand the way our brains fight against us, like it's okay if you don't understand it. But if you don't understand it completely, then keep away from judgments. Keep away from judgments so that like if one of your siblings was sexually abused as a child and suddenly they're struggling with obesity and they're seeing you post this garbage on Facebook saying that gluttony is obesity. They're just synonyms and the church needs to preach against it. Um, Posting about how, why would anyone choose to be overweight when look at all it does to your body? Like just, man, don't be obnoxious. And don't insult the people who love you and, and and people who are strangers that you're friends with on Facebook, because we're all friends with a lot of strangers on Facebook, too. It's not a good look. It's not Christ-like. And it's just tone deaf, really. It's tone deaf when it comes to trauma and survivors of trauma. I think I've just come to the realization that, yes, I will struggle with my weight probably for the remainder of my life. It's kind of like with anxiety. It would be great if my anxiety would just disappear, dissipate. I could do a few exercises, take some vitamins and it would be gone. Um, But it's one of those things that despite therapy and despite medication and despite the fight, 
um, that I'm still dealing with and might deal with for the rest of my life. There are just certain things that happen to us that take a lifetime to unravel. And whatever the struggle is, people don't need your judgment and people don't need your condemnation. They need your love and they need your support. And they need you to not look at them as a person who, oh, you're overweight. No, you're a human being. You're a human being with flaws like everybody else. And God loves you and accepts you exactly the way that you are without insisting that you go on a diet first. And again, I'm not against people being healthy and, you know, wanting to do something good for their bodies. I'm all for that. If that is the place you are in your healing, that's awesome. Um, just let's not judge people. Let's not judge people who already have a very, very heavy load to carry on their backs. And you're just adding to it with your judgment and condemnation. So I, I wanted to talk about that today. Um, on this episode of Survivor Sanctuary. And obviously, I would love to hear your thoughts. You can leave comments on this episode's page at SurvivorSanctuary.com. You can also leave comments on our Facebook group. If you join Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook, just search Survivor Sanctuary Podcast. You got to answer the multiple choice question for me to let you into the group. But once you answer that, I will let you into the group and you can share your thoughts on today's episode. I would love to hear about any of your struggles in the aftermath of sexual abuse. And if you've had issues with weight or eating disorders, whether it be binge eating disorder or bulimia, anorexia, anything like that, again, not a therapist, not offering therapy here, just would love to hear your experiences because I know each of us are a little bit different, but we're also quite similar at the same time. Well, I will catch you on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary. Don't forget to check out the brand new website, SurvivorSanctuary.com, and I'll catch you back here next time. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.